If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you, and there should be a bookmark right open to, uh, to Acts to make it easy for you. So we're going to be in Acts 6. Um, you know, as you're turning there, I'd like to thank uh, our worship team. So this summer, for those of you who don't know, this summer, uh, Daniel Rico is, uh, who has served as our perpetual all-time quarterback uh, worship leader for the last, like, eight years or so. Uh, he is getting the summer to kind of rest and, and recharge and, and take a summer to, uh, to not have to, to be leading. Um, and so Reed and Matt and Mike and uh, we have some other people, Sarah, everybody on the worship team is really stepping up to help give Daniel a little bit of space, Chris, um, and then we have some outside friends of the church who are going to come and help as well. Uh, but I'd just like to thank our whole worship team, Daniel especially, for all the time and energy he puts in all the time to serve and, and lead us, but also um, everybody, Reed especially, has taken a lot of time this summer to kind of be, uh, to kind of make sure everything's in the right place at the right time. So thank you guys, everybody that's on the worship team, thank you so much for, for the ways that you serve and care for our church. Um, I, uh, I, has anybody watched the show Shark Tank? Yeah, Shark Tank. It's awesome. If you don't know Shark Tank, oh man, you could lose some hours of your life to this. So Shark Tank, basically people have ideas, inventions, businesses, um, and they need help. They need help promoting, they need help with manufacturing, uh, further development of their concept, they, they just need help. Usually they need financial help, capital, and they need some wisdom. And so they go on this show and they make a pitch to uh, these investors, the sharks. And the investors might be able to invest in their company. And so these are all people who have proven themselves uh, in business. You got different people who have uh, started different companies or um, bought in and, and been able to just make a lot of money. Um, they know what they're doing with business and product development. And so usually the episode goes, the person comes out, they give their pitch, and then there's kind of this go back and forth between uh, the person with the pitch and the sharks. And so the person is obviously trying to sell their product to these sharks, trying to get them to invest. And while that's happening, the sharks are asking questions, and then this kind of turn happens where the sharks start to kind of promote themselves to the person. If they're interested, they say, you should pick me. You should let me invest because I can help you with this, that, and the other thing. Here's my specialty. And they kind of go back and forth. Uh, it's a really fun show, uh, and you might end up losing some money, spending some money on Amazon once you see all these cool things that people come up with. Or you'll do like my parents do when they watch that show, and they say, oh, we should have thought of that. Or, oh, I thought about that 10 years ago. I don't know why I didn't make that thing. Um, but what I like about Shark Tank, I, I like the show. One of the things that always sticks out to me is when they do, they do these like, like cut-ins, and they'll show like where are they now, right? They'll do people who are on earlier seasons, and they'll say, okay, now this is what happened. Somebody invested in them, and this is how it turned out. And it's always interesting to see like you have this husband and wife who are like selling sponges out of their back of their car, and they're overwhelmed by demand, and now they're in this like multi-million dollar factory, and they got the hundreds of people working under them, and the transition of progression as things grow, and the help that they needed, and the help that they got as things were growing is always really interesting to me. Um, as we open up to Acts 6 today, we're going to see the continuation and really the results and ramifications of the apostles leaving the council of the synagogue physically beaten but determined to continue to preach the gospel. Remember, at the end of 5, the, the apostles are arrested, and they are threatened, do not preach about Jesus anymore. They are beaten. They are given 39 lashings and sent on their way, and they say, yeah, we're going to keep doing that, and they continue to preach the gospel in houses and in synagogues. But as they do that, as they continue to preach, and the gospel continues to go forward, the gospel starts to do what it always does. It changes lives. 
And the church is expanding. The church is growing, and the apostles need help. We're going to see a problem arise in, uh, which leads the apostles to need to evaluate their priorities and call on people to help them. And that calling on of people leads to the persecution of one of those people specifically. So we got a problem, a priority, people, and persecution. That's where we're going today. I'm going to pray, and, and there's a lot of P words this morning. And then I'm going to, uh, I'll pray and then we'll get to work. So please buy your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you that we know um, you don't waste time, you don't waste our time, you don't waste your time, which means that you got us up today for a reason. There's a reason we are here today. There's a reason we got awake, we awoke this morning. God, for generations, you have called men and women to be your servants, to step into being part of what you have been doing in this world. And we believe you are still calling us to join this great work you are doing here today. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to gain a clear vision of your call on our lives. And with that clear vision, a deep dependence on the reality of your sovereignty and love that we might not only know intellectually, but know experientially, and live out the reality that we can do nothing apart from you. So Lord, tie us to yourself. Help us to cling to you so that we might live into all you have put on our lives to serve, to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. Lord, as we open your word today, give us eyes to see, give us ears to to hear, give us minds to understand, hearts to believe, and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're going to stop there. To this point, we have seen a variety of oppositions in the church, both externally and internally. Here now we have some divide and conquer work being done by Satan, trying to raise up one faction against another in an effort to split the church and cause chaos. I mean, really, chapters 5 and 6, as we've been looking at these, kind of show us that the whole, like, and they were all of one accord, and they all had unity. It's kind of becoming very quickly the good old days for the church. It's not that there's not unity. It's not that there's not relationships happening, but the newness, like the honeymoon phase, kind of seems to be over at this point. The church is having to deal with some real issues, again, externally and internally, and how they handle these things are going to have 
great consequence and influence on the impact of the future of the church. But verse 1, in the midst of that, reminds us that the church is growing. Even in spite of the tensions and conflicts, many were joining the church. And we talked last week about how these are serious converts. These are not just fringe onlookers trying to, trying to kind of sort of be around but don't really want to invest. When we say that disciples are growing, we're talking about people who are looking to grow in becoming more and more Christ-like, who have put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they are walking to grow more and more into his likeness. So this tells us, though, that as we see that they say the numbers are increasing, there is some order in the midst of all of this, right? We have thousands and thousands of people coming to faith, but the apostles knew, right? They knew who was with them and who wasn't. There were regular gatherings. We see them gathering. We, it says at the end of five, they're gathering in the synagogue. They're gathering in Solomon's portico. They're gathering in houses. There's some order. There's some structure to things. They're collecting and distrib- distributing funds. There's a plan in place to see things move forward. It's not just random chaos, but the apostles have some order in place to see things go forward. But in the midst of all of these efforts, this is a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. These two groups are two different groups of Jewish Christians. Hellenist in Hebrews is a rough translation. It's more like those who speak Greek primarily and those who speak Aramaic primarily. The Hellenists were the ones who speak Greek primarily. They were Jews who were comfortable with the Greek culture. Many of them had been living under Roman rule their whole lives, even for generations. Some of them had connections to when the Israelites were taken from the Promised Land and they were scattered in the diaspora and they just stayed in those spots for generation after generation and kind of blended into the world around them. And then you have the Hebrews, those who spoke Aramaic, and they are the ones mostly from Judea, and they clung closer to their Jewish culture. They clung closer to the things of the law. And there was a general tension between these two groups. The Hebrews saw the Hellenists as lazy and kind of sellouts in regards to their Jewish heritage, whereas the Hellenists saw the Hebrew contingent as too strict and a little too self-righteous. Though they all had a Jewish background, And now at this point, they have all put their faith in Christ as Christians. There is still some tension between them. Imagine that. Christians having tension between them. Who would have thought? In this context, we see this complaint come up. The Hellenist widows were being overlooked in the distribution. Throughout history, God's people have been instructed by God to care for the orphans, the sojourners, and the widows. Deuteronomy 14.29, Deuteronomy 16.11, Deuteronomy 24.20, Deuteronomy 26.12, all of them talk about how God's people are to care for the vulnerable in their midst, including the widow. God himself identifies in Psalm 68.5, he is a father of the fatherless and protector of widows in God is his, in his holy habitation. God sees not only himself as a father to the fatherless, but he protects those who are weak and he protects those who are those widows. This continues in the New Testament. We see Jesus take time to help in Luke 7. He helps uh, a widow who has lost her son and brings his son back. As well as regularly, you see Jesus condemning those authority leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who were in authority who were taking advantage of the weak and the powerless. Paul, later on, will give Timothy very specific instructions on how to care for the widows among them in the church in 1 Timothy 5. Now, usually at this point, it would be the temple and the synagogue leaders who would distribute supplies to the people. 
And it seems that the church has taken up this same task. As we remember, the people are selling everything and giving it to the apostles so that it could be distributed for anyone who is in need. This issue that we see here in verse 1 of chapter 6, I really think it's an oversight. I don't think this was an intentional part of the, of the apostles to try and malign one group, to try and create these factions. And really I say that because based on just how quickly they fixed the situation once the, once the complaint was made. Because we've got to remember, right, the apostles, these 12 guys are basically overseeing and running what has become in a very short amount of time a megachurch. These guys were not trained to handle something like this. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were just blue-collar guys who had no training in this kind of magnitude of leadership. They didn't go to business school. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have books and podcasts to learn how to be a better leader. They're just figuring it out as they went along. And they're doing all of that while also serving as the primary teachers. And they're also healing people. And they're also trying to lead this massive group. What happened here doesn't seem to be malicious intent, but rather it's the disciples just kind of losing track of things. But we do still have a problem that factions are forming. There is tension within the church. And this is the thing that will continue on as you read the New Testament. Much of the New Testament is written saying, be united. Paul especially calls the church to unity, calling them to be of one mind, of one accord, of one body. Over and over again, you see that throughout Paul's letters. Because as the church grows right now, we're seeing a disconnect between the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews. They're all still Jews. They're all still Christians. They all pretty much have the same background. Just wait until the Holy Spirit reaches out to those Gentiles and they come into the church. That's a whole new faction and a whole new set of issues that the church is going to have to deal with. So this will be a reoccurring theme, and constantly we see it in the New Testament, this call to unity, this call to relationship. This call that says, look, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Greek, and neither if you are a slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul will say. There must be unity within the church, God's people, because at the end of the day, we are all united under Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The apostles need to come up with a solution. And as they do, that solution takes on a few different forms. One thing they do is they focus on their priorities. We have a problem, and now we see that the apostles focus on their priorities, and we see it in verse 2 and 3. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This is the apostles setting a priority for themselves. Remember, what were they specifically charged from by Jesus himself? He told them, be my witnesses. Proclaim the good news. Preach the gospel. That's what they are called to do. That's what God has chosen for these twelve to do. And what they're finding out is that it is harder and harder to stay committed to that original goal due to the multitude of other responsibilities that they have to deal with as the church grows, as they try and lead this thing. Things like figuring out the distribution of funds and food for the widows is a distraction for them. So the apostles say, look, we can't do what our primary goal is, what Jesus called us to do, what we're supposed to be doing while we're trying to do all of these other things. And so they are setting a priority. In no way 
are they saying that one of these things is less than the other? They are not creating a hierarchy. They are not making levels of importance within the church. If anything, by making this statement and decision, they are clearly emphasizing the, important part, the importance of parts of the church that go beyond preaching and prayer. We've already seen Peter had an opportunity to make a big deal of himself, right? The crowds gather and, with him and John and the guy that they, the, the crippled man that they uh, healed. And everybody's ooing and eyeing at Peter and John. And Peter says to them, why are you making a big deal of us? Why are you staring at us as if our power, our piety, our holiness had anything to do with this? This is all about Jesus Christ. They immediately turn the attention away from themselves. And over and over again, as Peter and the apostles have stood before the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they have pointed time and time again to say that their responsibility, their whole drive, the thing that gets them up in the morning is to follow Christ and obey Christ. It is not to make much of themselves. So this decision here is not them trying to elevate themselves or set themselves apart from everyone else and say, look how holy we are because we're the preachers. But rather they're saying, God charged us to do this and so this is what we need to be doing. We've already talked about how in regards to widows, the importance and value God has placed on them. You can see it all throughout scripture. This is not a new thing. It's not a fad. This is at the heart of who God is. He is compassionate and he is a protector. God has revealed his heart for those who are disenfranchised, those who are oppressed, those whose society says you're not worth our time. God, since the beginning, has been calling his people and saying, look, you need to take care of this group. If you're going to reflect me to the world, one of the ways you're going to do that is by caring for those who are weaker than yourself. And so if the apostles were trying to minimize this ministry or minimize this issue happening, it would then be saying, okay, well, this thing that God clearly cares about, we don't care about it. And we know that's not true. The apostles, we know that's not how they think, act, or feel, that they are in line, that they are walking in the will of God. The apostles are not trying to minimize or downplay any ministry that goes beyond preaching the word. Rather, they're saying, if we try to do too many things, something will suffer and fail. And that's exactly what we're here, what has happened. Something has suffered and failed. Something has slipped and fallen through the cracks, and so they are recalibrating. They are resetting their priorities. It is a good and healthy thing to do to make priorities in your life, and as time goes on, to evaluate and reevaluate your priorities. Because over time, we can get distracted, we can lose sight of things, we can get caught up in just getting from day to day and lose sight of the things that we're supposed to be making the most important. It's okay to say, you know what? I've taken on too much. I've bitten off more than I can chew. I need to take a step back. I want you to hear this from me. It is okay to say no. And it's okay to say no to me when I ask you to do something. It is okay when I ask you to step into a ministry or to serve or to help out. It is okay to say no. It is okay to say, look, I am pulled in too many directions. I got too much going on. I got no more bandwidth to give. It is okay to say no. Now, side note, asterisk, if, you are if your heart is perpetually no, and you never want to serve, you never want to engage, you never want to connect, you never want to build community, that's a whole different conversation, right? Understanding our priorities, understanding yourself and your priorities and setting those things and sticking to them is an important and healthy thing to do. Note what the priority is for the apostles. Their priority is to do what God called them to do. 
The priority is I'm going to make Jesus, following Jesus and doing what he wants me to do, go ahead above everything else. That's number one, and everything else comes after it. But that can get tricky, though, right? Because you can have multiple good things, multiple good things that would glorify God at the same time asking for your attention. You can have multiple good things come up, good opportunities, and so how do we prioritize? How do we know what to prioritize? How do we know what is good, but what good is distracting from what is best? I think prayer is key here. Prayer for clarity, prayer for guidance, prayer for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. How does God give? He gives generously. No trick questions, folks. He gives generously wisdom when we ask for it. So ask for it and keep asking for it. Along with prayer goes community. This is one of the many reasons we have a church community. We have friends. We have relationships with one another that we can go and seek counsel from one another. That we can say, hey, I have these two things coming up. I have these opportunities. Which do you think more fits with who I am, more fits with what God is doing in my life? Give me an outside perspective. Help me make this decision. Get insight. Get help. Ask for help. That's a good thing. But this goes even just beyond just serving in the church or ministry as the way we think of it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. This applies to all of our life. Not just how we're spending our time in church, but how you're spending your time, period. But also, what are your priorities in other elements of your life? What are your priorities for your finances? Are you being generous, like we talked about a few weeks ago? Because God is generous, and so we too as Christians are called to be joyfully generous. Are you intentional about that? Or are you generous when you happen to have a few random dollars in your pocket? Or are you making it a priority to be generous because God has entrusted you with things to steward and give back? We are to be setting our priorities in such a way that glorify God with the decisions that we make, with the way that we spend our time, with the way that we interact with people, the way we work how our work affects the rest of our life, how much of our work we bring home with us, how we live and interact as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, the role you live into as a neighbor, as a coworker, the many different hats that you wear, all of these things, all of these different ways that you which you engage with the world are chances to glorify God. And all of these things are ways to glorify and worship him. And from time to time, we need to reevaluate our priorities and say, Am I doing what I can be with my time, with my talents, with my finances, with my efforts, with all that I am? Am I doing the best to glorify God in those areas? And when issues come up, when you start to evaluate and you look and you stop and you say, ooh, you know what? Things have gotten a little chaotic. Things have gotten a little out of place. My priorities have gotten a little out of whack. I need to recalibrate. I need to reset some things. That's a good, healthy thing, and that's what the apostles are doing here. They're not minimizing or saying one thing is less than the other. Rather, they are following the priority God has given them. So we had the problem, and we saw the apostles setting their priorities, and the way that we can, they can best accomplish setting these priorities is through people. We see in verse 3, I'll read it again for us, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we shall appoint to this duty. The solution they come up with is to pick among the group of disciples seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, who will be appointed to this job. 
Again, they are showing the importance of this. They're letting the crowd decide. They're letting the disciples, the church decide. You guys figure this out. But they're saying it's important. They're not just saying, hey, you know what? Pick a few guys, draw straws, doesn't really matter. Just throw some guys at the problem and let's just get it done with. Instead, they give qualities. You guys need to come up with seven for us. And here's some qualities to look for in these. Men of good repute. Men who have a good reputation and are trustworthy. Why? Because the whole dispute is about preferential treatment. And they don't want that to be there. So go find guys who have a good reputation, who are honorable, who are dependable, who are trustworthy. Men who are full of spirit, men of God, spiritually minded, listening to and responding to the Spirit's lead. Full of means led by, driven by, consumed by. A person who is led by, driven by, consumed by the Spirit and by wisdom. They should be competent. They should be practically minded guys, guys who can figure out situations like this because this isn't the last one that's going to come up. So people who can deal with other people in a fair, honest competent way, who are led by and driven by following into wisdom. People who love God, people who have a good reputation with others and who are wise and trustworthy. Those are the kind of people you should be looking for. Those are the kind of people we still want in charge today. By finding some people like this, the apostles were able to give themselves fully to prayer and to preaching, not having to worry about these other details because they know they got guys who they can trust guys who are called and qualified individuals so they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to micromanage. They don't have to, it's getting taken care of. And so we get a list of these five or six men, verses five and six, we get a list of these men. And first among them is Stephen, who we're going to come back to in a few minutes. Some commentaries point out that all the names listed here are in Greek, which might suggest that they're all part of that Hellenistic group. That this may have been an intentional way to help mend whatever hurt feelings had happened over this conflict. I don't know if that's an intentional choice or not, but the group decided, the disciples decided, this is what we want to do. These men were nominated by the group as a whole, and then it was up to the apostles to approve them by praying for them and laying on hands over them as a sign of authority and approval of the decision. Some see this as the beginning of the, the, the diaconate, the role of deacons in the church. So you have the role of elder, which is basically how the apostles have been functioning at this time. Basically, the role of elder focused on the preaching of the word, prayer, the spiritual growth and education of the church. And then you have deacons who oversaw more of the practical ministry elements, the day-to-day kind of stuff. And while these two roles can overlap, it is always helpful to help them stay as separated as possible to allow people to focus all of their attention and make their office a priority for them. But again, I want to say this is not a hierarchy thing. This is not that one is better or more important than the other. In fact, in verse 1 and in verse 4, the same word is used to talk about serving in both different instances. In verse 1, when it talks about the idea of serving the widows, the daily distribution, and then in verse 4, it's used in regard to teaching the word. Both of them use this word for service, and I don't do this to you guys often, but I'm going to give you the Greek for it. The word is diakonia. Say diakonia. Diakonia. Look at that. You got some Greek in you. This word means service or ministry. It's the act of serving another person. And we know already, even just from a few chapters here in Acts, Luke is very particular with his word choice. He could have used any words here, but he uses the same word in both instances because they are both important and both are important ways to serve. Both are ways of serving God and serving people. They are both ministry, ministry of the word, ministry of the work. 
They are both vital and both require people who are called, who are full of the Spirit, who are walking with God to execute them. These things can be full-time endeavors. They can be part-time things. The only difference between them is the form that they take and the different gifts needed to execute those things. Diakonia is a generic term for service. It changes whenever you add the adjective to describe what kind of service you are doing. John Stott says, um, all Christians, without exception, being followers of him who came not to be served but to serve, are themselves called to ministry, indeed to give their lives in ministry. So we are all to be serving in some form of ministry. And when we think ministry, we think here in the church, and that might be it. But ministry extends beyond that. Diaconia is a generic term. So ministry might look like how you serve in your family or at work or in your neighborhood, in your own household. Ministry opportunities, the chance to serve other people is everywhere all the time if you are willing to pay attention and respond. So regardless of what type of diaconia you do, you have and add importance and value to your community, to your spheres of influence when you step into those moments. As well as while you are doing that, while you are stepping in to serve others, you are growing in the gifts and talents that God has entrusted you with. And so when the apostles were able to address the problem that they had by reviewing their priorities and getting the right people involved, it helped them to focus on the diaconia that they were made for and give themselves fully to it. And what we see in verse 7 is that the word of God, the good news of the gospel, continues to increase, continues to spread. Word is making rounds of the grace and mercy and life and hope and forgiveness being offered by God through putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And as the word spreads, the word does what it always does and will always continue to do. It calls people to God to make disciples, to make followers of Christ, to see renewal, to see new life happen. The word was even making its way into the heads and, more importantly, the hearts of those who served in the temple as many of the low-level priests became obedient to the faith. You see, when priorities are set and godly people are living into what God has called them to do, we will always see fruit. We will see growth and we will see the church be strengthened. When priorities are set and godly people are living into what God has called them to do, we will see fruit, we will see growth, and we will see the church be strengthened. But as we've also seen throughout this book and we've also seen throughout the Bible in general, even when you are doing good, there will always be opposition and persecution for the sake of the gospel. We see it, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8. <clears throat> and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is, it seems, someone who is already a person full of the Spirit. Maybe now with the added role and responsibility and prayers of the apostles laid upon him, he is doing great wonders and signs among the people. Wonders and signs not for his own glory, not for his own, uh, not to boost his own ego, but again to point others to Jesus and to the gospel. These signs and wonders that happen in the New Testament are glimpses of the kingdom of God, glimpses of what fullness of life can and will look like, which can only be found in a relationship in Christ. Along with the signs and wonders, Stephen is also sharing what he knows. He is sharing his story. He is sharing the gospel message in different synagogues, traveling around apparently. One of those is the synagogue of the free men, which was probably founded by Jews who at one point were slaves under Roman Empire and had been freed. Then along with some others, including those from Sicilia, and that, that town or that part of the world, uh, their capital is Tarsus, which is the hometown of Paul, who we're going to meet in the next couple of chapters. And so there's a good chance that Paul is in the background paying attention to what's happening with this new church. They debate with Stephen, but as it says in verse 10, these men could not match the wisdom and spirit that Stephen brought to the table. But his wisdom, this spirit that he has within him, it's not his own. As they debated with these men, this was not a byproduct of him just being the smartest guy in the room. This was a byproduct of him being a person who walks with God. These men that Stephen are debating with, they get mad that they couldn't handle his intellect. They couldn't handle his spirit. They couldn't rattle him. They couldn't shake him. They couldn't do anything to throw him off his game. And so they decide to go a different route and just lie. They rile up the elders and the people by saying that Stephen was preaching words against Moses and God. Interesting that they put Moses ahead of God as they're complaining. Much of the allegations they make, though, against Stephen were similar to what was alleged against Jesus when he was arrested. So, you know, Stephen's in pretty good company in that regard. It says in verse 11 that they heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Words like Jesus was greater than Moses. Jesus was God. That there's this new reality of a relationship and connection to God through Jesus that means we no longer need the temple. The accusations against Stephen get even stronger in verse 13 that he spoke against the holy place and against the law, that he was speaking directly against God. I mean, the temple was God's place. That's his home. That's, it's where you went to encounter God. No matter what was going on in your world, you knew God was there in the holy of holies. Even during those days when the Jews were separated from Jerusalem, when they were taken from the promised land, they would pray and they would angle themselves facing toward Jerusalem, not in some kind of mystic connection, but really just to remind themselves that's home, that's where our God is, and that's, that's where we're supposed to be. To speak against the temple was to speak against safety, was to speak against the thing that united them. And the law, that's God's word. I mean, we know from, for those of you who were around last year when we studied Galatians, the law isn't bad of itself, right? We know God is good. God gives good things. God gave us the law. Therefore, the law is good. It is the divine, inspired, living, and active word of God. It helped to point people to separate the Israelites to live differently so that they might point people toward God. To speak against the place of God's presence and his word was serious accusations against Stephen. Their evidence was that Stephen echoed the words of Jesus, that Jesus would destroy the temple and he would change the laws. 
So we've got to ask, is that true? Did Jesus say and do those things, and was Stephen saying and doing them? Well, we know in John 2, Jesus does say the phrase, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, John gives us clarity to that statement and explains he was talking about the temple of his body, and it was a reference to the three days he would be spent from his death, his, his death and then to his resurrection. But the hearers took that as Jesus talking about the actual temple, that he could rebuild it by hand in three days. He also stated in Matthew 12 that something greater than the temple is now here, Jesus taught. That something greater is actually a someone greater. He was himself. He, was, he supersedes the temple. If the temple was the place to encounter God, to worship God, to seek forgiveness, to give to God, to connect with others. All of that is made available to us by and through Jesus. Because of him, we have access to God anywhere, anytime. We can worship and pray and confess and repent and give and engage with and experience the presence of God because of what Christ did for us at the cross. The temple is no longer the idol that the Jewish leaders had turned it into, and that's exactly what they did. Look, it's good to gather. Sundays are good. It is good to be united. It is good to be with Christians, to worship together, to get to do ministry together, to get to be shoulder to shoulder, engaging with God together. But when we elevate the place of God over God himself, the one who gave us the place, we have made an idol of the church. Jesus came to set those things straight. He removes the barriers of sin and guilt and shame. He removed the things that separate us from God and gave us access to him as sons and daughters of God, able to run to our Heavenly Father with the same kind of passion and excitement and childlike innocence as a toddler calling out for his dad. So yes, Jesus does, did say this, and he does supersede the temple. And what about the law and the changing of the customs of Moses? What about that? Well, we know Jesus in his ministry years, often would push back against the ways that the Pharisees had already taken what, got, what Moses gave them and manipulated it. They did what they call putting a hedge around the law, where the law would say, you're not allowed to do this, so we're going to say, you can't even do that. We're going to get nowhere near it. But in doing that, what they did was made life harder and harder, and they made people feel like they could never connect with God and that they were never good enough because they couldn't even match the hedge, let alone the actual law itself. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said something else similar in the synagogue in Luke 4. In Luke 4, they read the, this passage from Isaiah, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, the fulfillment of this prophecy is fulfilled in me, is what Jesus was saying. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as he is the Messiah, the chosen one to go to war with Satan. He fulfills the law and makes it no longer needed. He was the perfect sacrifice that all of the other sacrifices pointed to. For thousands of years, goats and bulls and sheep and rams and birds, they were killed. Their blood was spilled all over tab tabernacles and synagogues. 
And all of that could not save the people, but rather it pointed them to the perfect sacrifice that could actually get the job done. It pointed them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus taught very clearly that he had come to supersede, that everything else was just a pointer to him. And clearly, Stephen echoed, just as the apostles had, that Jesus is the superseding of the temple and the law. He is the fulfillment of those things. And to say that, to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things, it doesn't minimize the role and importance of the law and the temple, but rather it elevates them. It elevates their significance as gifts of grace from God to point people to the Messiah if they had eyes to see and ears to hear. Brothers and sisters, don't ignore this morning the many different ways God is using this world to point you to Jesus. The common and special ways he reveals himself to you. They are all over this world. All the time, God is giving us ways and things to point us and say, look, this reminds you of that which points you to Jesus. Over and over again, God is revealing himself and pointing us to him. Don't skip out on those things. Don't miss those things. Even if you are a Christian, enjoy those and see those things as a gift of God and let those remind you and encourage you and fan the flame on your heart. With these accusations laid out upon Stephen, these accusations that could cause him death if he was found guilty. All of the eyes of the council turned to look at Stephen in verse 15. And it says his face is like an angel. It is radiant. People come to the Bible and they say there's nothing funny in the Bible. God's got jokes. And this is proof. These good Jewish leaders, they will remember that when Moses came down from the mountain, when he was on the mountain getting the law and communing with God, he comes down from the mountain and his face was radiant. It had to be shielded from the people because it was so bright. Now, similarly, God has done the same thing to Stephen. Even though he's the one accused of attacking the legacy of Moses, now God is using him in the same way he used Moses. The council asks Stephen, are these things so? Are these accusations true? And Stephen opens his mouth, and what he says, we're going to look at the next time we're in the book of Acts, so just come back and we'll, we'll jump into that in a few weeks. But I'll give you a spoiler for what that sermon is. He's going to talk about what he knows. He's going to talk about the goodness of God. He's going to talk about how God is faithful, how God is trustworthy, and how God sent his only son to come and live perfectly and die painfully and defeat sin powerfully in the resurrection. Stephen had a problem literally sitting before him. His problem looked him in the eye. This council of men who tortured the apostles and killed Jesus now sat looking for any excuse to make an example of him. And in that moment, Stephen had to evaluate his priorities. He had to do it in real time because it's one thing to be in church, to be comfortable and say, yes, my priority is Jesus, amen and amen. But it's another thing when you're actually feet to the fire and you've got to make a choice. He needed to assess and choose what, he, what would he make his priority in that moment. Would he choose to glorify Jesus with his words and actions? Would he choose to trust in the name of Jesus? Would he choose to build his defense against these accusations on the chief cornerstone? Or would he simply just walk away? Because it would be so easy to just give in and back off and stand down. And not only would it be easy, but it would help him a ton and save him and make things much more comfortable for his whole life if he just backed off and said, nope, that's not true, I'm not about this Jesus guy. But we know his priority has been set. 
It was set long before this encounter, and it wasn't going to change now. It wasn't going to change because Stephen was a certain kind of person, was, a, was part of a certain kind of people, people full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. It says here he's full of grace and full of power. So he is led by, directed by, abided in, and trusted in following the Holy Spirit. And because of that, grace, power, wisdom, these things flowed from him, and he sought opportunities to reflect those things back to the world. You may face persecution for your faith at some point. But whether or not that happens, in the meantime, you will undoubtedly face predicaments. See, one last P word. You will face difficult situations, difficult circumstances, events in your life. And those things are opportunities. Opportunities to grow into being the kind of person that God is making you to be, to grow in being a person who lives full of the Spirit, trusting in Him, letting Him lead and responding when you are directed so. It's possible to have the Holy Spirit, but not be full of the Holy Spirit. It's possible to have the Holy Spirit, but not be full of the Holy Spirit, because to be full of the Holy Spirit means you listen and respond to Him and don't just ignore and avoid because it's easier. You will face predicaments in your life which are opportunities to actually see where your priorities lie. And when needed, reestablish and reevaluate those priorities so that they would be in line with what God has called you to be. To be serving, to be stepping into your diaconia, to being the light of the world, shining truth, shining grace, shining hope and love and forgiveness and justice and mercy in a world that is dark and tired and lonely and lost. As you live and engage in this world, you have the chance to show your priority is to glorify Jesus in every decision and to be one of those kind of people who lives full of the Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead you and guide you as he makes you more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. So what's your priority? What kind of people are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. God, we thank you for giving us testimonies like that of men like Stephen, who are just guys. The Bible is full of these men and women who, all they do, they, they just turn to you. They're faithful to you. They trust you and you do amazing things through them. Oh God, that we would be faithful to you, that we would trust you. God, we know your Bible's real clear about how good you are, how awesome you are, how trustworthy you are, how wonderful you are, how faithful you are. Over and over, we are reminded of it. And yet so often, we let so much distract and slow us down and turn us around and let our priorities get thrown all over the place. God, help us to set our priorities, the ones to glorify you, to make much of you, to thank you and praise you and glorify you in every decision, in every interaction, in every thought, in every word. That's big, God. We need you. We can't do that on our own because on our own we are going to rebel. We're going to fall short. 
and you knew that, you know that, and you gave us your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, that we would trust the Holy Spirit, that we would be people who are full of the Holy Spirit, that we are walking in, abiding in, trusting and being led by the Holy Spirit and actually stepping into the moments when he tells us to. There's so much good, so much grace, so much justice, so much hope that your church can bring to this world if we would be a people who are perpetually pursuing the Holy Spirit. And that starts right now today. God, help us to be those kind of people. Lord, help us to find the places you have called us to serve. The many different places, the many different opportunities and, and areas where we can be helpful, where we can serve, where you can shine and be glorified by through us using the gifts and talents and abilities you have given to us. Help us to find those places and step into them, Lord. And when we don't know where, don't know how, give us the boldness to take a step and try. To take a step and just see what you're going to do. See how you're going to move. Jesus, you said we are the lights of the world. You didn't really give us an option on that one said, if, you're, if we're going to follow you, we're going to be the lights of the world. Lord, help us to shine brightly. Help us to trust in and rely on the Holy Spirit to do that, to point people to you, to make much of you, to glorify God in all that we do. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.